welcome to the podcast. I'm Celine, a media graduate with Interesting Cooks. And I'm a dad. I'm Stephen. I'm an organisational psychologist. I was raised in a cult. Um, and it's a very special day today, Celine, isn't it? Happy birthday to us. Uh, <laughs> 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 the podcast is having a proper birthday party before I had a birthday party. It was four, wasn't I, when we went and did our first oh, birthday celebration. So in yeah, fact, proper. I'm jealous of the podcast. Um, <laughs> the podcast. Yeah, I think it's unfair. <laughs> well, yeah. So this is for our not regular listeners. This is because I was, well, me and your mum, uh, we were raised as Jehovah's Witnesses. We sort of left Jehovah's Witnesses when, when you were around, when you were born, but it took us a few mm-hmm years couple of years really to get into the swing of life outside of the jw's isn't it mm-hmm. yeah you don't straight so, away we, i think we've mm. said before how you know christmas tree started about like two feet and now it's seven um exactly yeah and, you know all of that so yeah it's part of the yeah. process isn't it yeah so um yeah yeah three years since we started the podcast we started as what should i think about dot dot question mark um i was in and... my early 20s no i'm in my late 20s <laughs> <laughs> that is quite scary, isn't it? Really, yep. think about that. Yeah, and Ooh. I dislike. <laughs> I was yeah. quite comfortable with twenty six, twenty seven. I don't know. I'm sorry to be that person that's really annoying. You know, and like people younger than you complain. Yeah. But, you know, the thirties are approaching. It's Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, so it's not about you. It's about the podcast. It's yeah. Cult Hacker's birthday. So although it started off with a different name, we are saying it's the third birthday three years of court hacking and um yeah that's i'm pretty proud of that i think we've Mm -hmm. had some really interesting conversations i mean i was looking up all the people we've spoken to there's like about 95 different Mm -hmm. guests we've had over the three years um which is pretty amazing really so some really interesting people impressively consistent i would say because we do (laughs) not miss an episode we we yeah you know Mathers get things done. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, a lot of podcasts have seasons, don't they? And yeah. uh, we're still in season one, uh, three Forever. years later. <laughs> it's not always been easy, but we've managed to do it. So um, today we're going to have a bit of a party, Celine. So you might be able to hear in the background um, that the party's getting started. So uh, we're going to slip into the space-time continuum party there and we're going to revisit some of our guests. So our guests are in this party and we're going to go and have a quick word with with our guests and um, we'll just sort of step back into our conversations that we had with them. Um, So some of these go back to our first year, some second year. Um, and so on so um, yeah we hope you enjoy this episode it's a bit of a special one oh okay um should we go speak to lizzie ends um, former armish person oh yeah definitely yeah lizzie was such a popular guest i was so curious about the world outside of what i was living in that i did recognize it within myself that that we were different and um it it made me feel insecure and uncomfortable in certain situations so like if you went to the grocery store and you had to get stuff 
um, or if someone like people will give you weird looks if they don't understand. I was say, how, how do people uh, treat you as well? That's another question. Yeah. yeah. In general, um, the people around there they're familiar with Amish, yeah. so mm -hmm. they're in general like people are really really nice. Um, but depending on where you went, if they weren't familiar with them, like you definitely would get weird looks. Like, mm. who are these people, and where do they come from? Um, but I think that you're also so secluded that you don't, you 100% don't know what you don't know. So I feel like a lot of my insecurities that I had to work through didn't happen until after I left because mm. then I got exposed to, oh, this is the real world. Like this, yeah. there's all these things that I have no clue about and then you know, shame and guilt and fear come in because you're just like, I don't know anything. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. I never really thought about that before, though, as far as, like, what I felt within that, that question, specific question. I was never asked that before, so that was a good question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I suppose, like, that kind of um, leads, leads me into what I was thinking about in terms of leaving, like, um, suppose was there a moment building up to you deciding to leave or were you were you all of a sudden like oh it just hit you that you wanted to leave or, yeah what was that process like for you just internally it's a long process mm -hmm. nobody just wakes up one day and says i'm leaving mm -hmm. because where we are we can't just tell our family hey we're leaving mm -hmm. right like we have to like behind the scenes plan it, figure it out. And then on top of that, you don't have a lot of connections, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, I want to leave, but how in the world am I going to make this happen? Mm -hmm. Right? So I think that I started getting that feeling of I need to leave at some point, at least find out what I don't know at around 13. Mm -hmm. um, I felt this like, kind of like, fire inside of me like i there's something more and i'm driven to find out more hey look over there there's brent lee um brent's been on the podcast twice so let's go and have a chat to brent um he was a former conspiracist uh so he's a very very interesting guy to talk to hey brent people didn't generally think that these were hoaxes back then in, in in the in the 2000s like that wasn't really a narrative in the conspiracy community which today it is almost yeah. anything happens people act like it's a hoax it's a crisis you know crisis actors are involved and nothing really happened mm -hmm. um but i didn't think that and that's what really like you know it's what really angered me and really drove a lot of my conspiracies is that i thought right. the government was hurting our own civilians right you know they were killing us and blaming someone else so that's why i was trying to you know, bring light to a criminal investigation, essentially, that we should be doing on our government. Yeah. Uh, so, but long story short, like I used to push that a, a lot. And I put out a little tweet saying that, you know, admitting my sort of owning, owning my yeah. role. Yeah, I saw that tweet. Um, and a survivor of 7-7, mm. Paul, he actually contacted me and, you know, said, like he forgives me for everything I did and he's really proud of like what I'm doing today. 
was it was really great. And basically, Mariana Spring saw this interaction, and so she got in touch with both of us and said, "You know, could could I interview you both? And would you both like to meet, like either in person or we can do a Zoom call or something?" Turns out, Paul lives in different countries, so we did it over Zoom, um, and that became like one of the episodes to this disaster trolls just to give extra context of you, you know um mm. it's not all bad like we're not all terrible people and that we can actually change you know and, and and something can be resolved from this and i think that's what she was trying to show the conspiracists and trying to show richard d hall himself that you know this could be fixed yeah so yeah so i was able to yeah know, that- be a part of that that episode, um, I remember listening to that because I do remember the um, the tweets that you put out. Actually, I remember the original tweet. I saw it and I saw the reply, um, and that was quite affecting. But when I listened to the documentary and I heard your, because we actually get to hear you two talking um, on that call, and um, yeah, it's actually a you know I think a lot of people reacted in the same way. There's a lump in in your throat, you know, and. Mm. It kind of even now talking about it, I think it's it's such an emotional um piece actually. And that ability for somebody like you to be able to say, look, you know, I, I want to say sorry and I wanna I wanna own what happened, I think is yeah, is is really, as I say, affecting. It's really heartwarming. Uh, right, okay, there's Daniela over there, Daniela Massinet-Young. She's uh, a U.S. Army vet, and she was raising the children of God. She's written a book as well, so uh, we talked to her about her experiences. Let's go and have a chat. I was just going to come off the back of what you are saying there about the fact that you you know, had, had taken in um, without realising the, the fear of the people on the outside and what that would be like but you obviously did want to go and be outside um so i guess like it's a very big question so answer it as um broadly or specifically as you like but how how was that kind of process mentally going from i'm afraid but i want to yeah you know um one of the things with you know, having the term systemites, right, which is a term for outsiders, which is a lot of times called us versus them thinking, Mm -hmm. but it's also dehumanization, right? Like we, the 10,000 members of the children of God, we were the family, we were God's army, we were right. And everyone else, like nothing was even considered, right? So there's absolutely no consideration for another way of being. It's just, we're right and they're wrong. And, you know, when I was six years old, after some fairly horrific experiences, I remember having this conversation with myself and saying, you know, if if this is correct, if the family is really God's chosen people, like, I don't want God. I'm, you know, hell's going to suck, but I'm out of here. And I so much relate to what you were saying about, you know, just wanting to prove um, everybody wrong. But Celine, to answer your question, the way I describe it in Uncultured is I was as afraid that I would have to go as I was that I would have to stay. 
Oh look, there's one of your old professors over there, Celine. There's Professor Chris French, used to be uh, a professor at Goldsmiths University. He he described himself as professor of weird shit, didn't he? That is his self-proclamation, yeah. Me and a friend definitely did this to ourselves. I remember, like, <laughs> um, we played, we started playing something that we made up as kids. We called it the coin game, where we just flipped it a coin and it was either heads or tails and it was like oh we're talking to ghosts and they either say yes or no um that's really and, interesting yeah and we were like definitely feeding that into each other other kids would see us doing this on the playground and join in and they'd say oh i definitely saw something over there or like something <laughs> or it's definitely colder now or whatever and it started you know yeah. feeding in and i think I believed it less in the moment and then more after the fact when we're all sat in class later and you're not allowed to talk to each other, you're meant to be working, <laughs> you're but you're just sitting there thinking it, about yeah. it. You know, and you go back on lunch and you're like, it was definitely, you know, we've got ourselves into trouble here, guys. It's really bad. You know, and I remember, you know, I definitely know none of it's real now, but I remember thinking we were seeing things and it feeling very real. Well, I mean, time. again, this is, I mean, again, this is the power of suggestion. This is another kind of relevant thing to anomalistic psychology in general. Um, I mean, one of the nice things about anomalistic psychology is that you can actually try and kind of test these things under properly controlled conditions so that you know exactly what is going on and how mm. people's perception of what's going on is deviating from that. Mm. But, I mean, that's a really nice example of what you just said there. Um, I mean, in fact, you know, one of the, one of the kind of, biases that we have if, if that's the right word for it is that we w human beings are really good at kind of making sense of the world around us picking up on meaningful patterns uh, but sometimes we can we we read meaning in when it isn't really there mm -hmm. and there was in fact um, a study that was done um, of essentially what you were saying the the, the, the participants in the study were told that um, they could have a session, an, kind of an online session. This was mm. years and years back, you know. Um, have an online session with, with a counsellor, but the counsellor could only answer in terms of yes or no. So, mm. you know, they all had to be yes, no questions that were put to the counsellor. And in actual fact, the responses were just entirely random. But people mm -hmm. would often find it really insightful, you know, the, the, the kind of responses they were getting from this counsellor as they yeah. thought um and it's, a, it's exactly what you're saying there mm -hmm. you know if you think you're communicating with something outside mm -hmm. and in fact it's just random yeah. you're the one who's reading the meaning into it but yeah. it can still feel very real and then the initial mm -hmm. thing of actually seeing things that probably were not really happening mm -hmm. um again we did we did a, a a study of that and again this brings us back to the memory thing again um, one of the phenomena that we're interested in, and this is something that my colleague at Goldsmiths, Fiona Gabbert, who, who I know you know, mm -hmm. um, she, she did research on something called memory conformity. Uh, that's where you have a situation, if you only have a single eyewitness account, you would not give that as much evidential weight as if you've got multiple witnesses and they're all saying more or less the mm -hmm. same thing. And that's probably quite sensible. One thing to bear in mind is that um, if people witness something unusual, whether it be a crime or a possible sighting of the Loch Ness Monster or a ghost <laughs> or a UFO, they will discuss it with each other. And one person's account can influence another person's memory. Let's go over there to Susan Downs from the uh, Nixium group. That was a very interesting interview. It was, yeah. She was one of the first to sort of 
flagged that as a as a dangerous group, wasn't she? Mm-hmm. She's got to have a movie one day, hundred percent. Definitely. So, so here's a quote, um, Susan. Um, She's an amazing woman and she totally understands how it all works. That's what Mark Vicente says in um, <laughs> in The Vow. Um, and um, he's particularly talking about how you took on Nexium. They they actually came after you, didn't they? And uh, do you want to tell us a bit about that? I think this is a really heroic story. So tell us how you ended up in court. Yeah. Um, and what you did. Yeah, well, they, they, um, they sued me, which... Um... I think they were just trying to shut me up for one thing. And then, but they came into my bankruptcy um, case as adversaries. But instead of just saying, you know, oh, the student list has value and you have to correct that, they filed um, almost, I think it was like 200. By the time we did discovery and then they filed uh, secondary claims against me, it was almost 300 claims. Like they said, I tried to extort money out of them and, you know, that I falsified my bankruptcy and that, you know, this woman left me money who was an ex Nexium member in her will, which she didn't and all kinds of stuff. Well, so so anyways, let me just, let me just interrupt, yeah. sorry, um, just to help our listeners. So, um, so in a bankruptcy in the States, you have to go to the court to essentially say, um, I, I have no money. I can't pay my debtors. Um, and mm-hmm. that was, that was mainly because of what happened at Nexium, of course, which, which yeah. we can get to, but, um, you end up in this terrible situation through your, your working with Nexium, but then they decide to hop on to the, the, the court case, which is essentially your bankruptcy as a, um, as a hostile witness essentially against you mm-hmm. claiming money from your estates which you haven't got because you're you're going bankrupt yeah what right? they yeah really what they want to do is get my bankruptcy tossed so that i would owe all my debtors wow and so the thing is is that all that debt was nexium debt you know so money that i had borrowed to start the center those kinds of things to take courses, those kinds of stuff. You know, I, I didn't live an extravagant lifestyle, believe me. <laughs> so I had a house that was way underwater because of the market crash that had happened in the United States. And I had two very used cars. And so, um, so yeah, I, I didn't have an extravagant lifestyle. Mm. And so I was broke, you know, my job was Nexium. you know, I didn't even have a job. So, and so, yeah. And so, I couldn't find an attorney that would take me on pro bono, which means for free. And um, any attorney that I called wanted a, a $20,000 retainer, which I didn't have. And I, knowing Nexium, how litigious they were in lawsuits, they would have blown through that in a week if I would have even had that. So here I am in bankruptcy court standing. You know, my bankruptcy was approved. And then you have like 90 days for any of your debtors to come in and say, wait a minute, we want to question this. And so Nexium came in and said on the final day and the final hour of my bankruptcy being approved came in and said, we want to, we want to be adversaries. And, but that was their mode of operation. Anybody else who had ever filed for bankruptcy, Nexium came in and, and became adversaries. That was their favorite place to sue people. All right, so there's a fellow ex-Jehovah's Witness over there. There's Daniel Allen Cox, the author of I Felt the End Before It Came, 
fantastic guest, and we did a two-part with Daniel. So let's uh, let's catch up with him. Yeah, very eloquent. Mm. The short story is that I was out uh, bowling with a few uh, um, witness friends uh, on the weekend. Um, you know, one of our wholesome activities, and you know, is uh, probably um, chaperoned. There was probably a few a few uh, dating situations happening. Of course, everyone um, being witnesses, and I. I guess I was feeling good. I was feeling relaxed, and I happened to to comment on my friend's boyfriend being handsome, and um, the the comment was left sort of unaddressed. And I was uh, I was eighteen years old at the time, um, and I'd been living a queer life for at that point a few years and and had started um having sex with men already at that point um and i guess i had either let my guard down or was ready to be caught or a combination of the two as as is always the case i mean i'm sure this is a very familiar story to you and um and then i got a phone call two days later from our congregation's presiding elder. Um, and we basically had our discussion on the phone, which I'm told by several ex Jehovah's Witnesses is unusual that mm-hmm. I wasn't convened to kind of like an in-person judicial meeting, which mm-hmm. which I agree is is a, a bit a bit like unusual now that I think about it. But um, it, it only goes to show that while our experiences are very common, every kingdom hall is informed by the yeah. by the charismatic personality of its you know its like top elder, right? So yeah. he did things on the phone, right? And um, and I was offered a choice. Um, well, actually, first I was asked, you know, do you plan to live <laughs> as a homosexual? You know, and and a very interesting concept here of, of um you can be something but not live as as something which of course um is a line straight from the gay conversion therapy playbook right mm-hmm. and uh of course uh, that always leads to to excellent results in people's lives yeah I as we all know generally get on okay with that don't they? <laughs> <laughs> um so so i told them I had every intention of uh, continuing to sleep with men, um, and uh, at this point, I'd, I'd uh, kind of press the button on things, and, and I guess I was looking for like a reason to press that uh, uh, button and um, offer a choice to either um, disassociate myself via letter or to. Uh, go through the uh, um, process of being disfellowshipped um, with uh, a view to one day repenting, which I think I think both of us realized on the phone in uh, this pretty unbelievable conversation where he told me that he loved me and to be careful of AIDS. <laughs> um, 
And um, I said, yeah, I'll send you the letter. Um, so, so I mailed the letter. Um, it was pretty much the, uh, probably the best thing I've written, although I can't really recall much of it. Um, in my mind, it's this, um, it's this key piece in my, in my literary history. Um, <laughs> Let's go speak to Rachel Range. Really interesting. So he's got lots to say, lots of really important, interesting stuff to say. Yeah, Rachel was great. Uh, she was from, um, or she was a member of the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God. Um, she's still very, very active, um, trying to raise awareness of that group. So let's uh, let's catch up with her. Well, the horrific thing was that's where it started. I mean, that's literally at this point, there was no kind of doubt in my mind about the church. You know, mm -hmm. it, it was the years that followed. So when I was an assistant um, at 15, by the time I was 19, um, I got married in the church. Mm -hmm. I got married to a, a fellow assistant at the time. And that is just ridiculously young. I mean, in the church, in UCKG years, I was, you know, a fully grown adult <laughs> because I had to grow up for so young, you know, because when I was 15, I was already an assistant. Mm -hmm. So by the time I was 19, like in UCKG years, I was already like a full grown woman ready for a husband. So um, they are really big on young people getting married. Mm -hmm. I think one of the two reasons, I think one reason is because they feel that it's a good testimony to others for there to be lots of young married couples in the church. And secondly, they say, look, you need to get married or you're going to fall into sin and go to hell. So you have three months, you know, date someone for three months. And if you're not ready to even marry them, you know, you be ready to either marry them or break up with them. Like three months is your max, because if you date longer than three months, then you're going to fall into temptation. You're going to fall into sin and go to hell. And we've got another ex-Jehovah's Witness over there, Claire Alison Hams. She's a therapist. And again, this was one of the most popular episodes. So uh, let's go and chat to Claire. What, what are some of the problems that people have when they leave? I mean, obviously, you know, we can make assumptions that we know this because we are ourselves, we've been through that. But I guess um, everybody's journey is different. So what are some of the difficulties that people have when they leave? That's diversity. Like you said, we are all individual. Mm. And one of the biggest ones is, is fear of loss of community, so whether that be family or the community of, of the cult, which is like a family, um, which was mm. the case for me. I'd lost family members that had died. So the community for me became very much my family, particularly because when you're born in, you grow up with these people. You've known them. They, they hold all of your, your memories and all mm. of your key life events. Um, so that's a big thing, ostracism and shunning. And I think you've interviewed Dr. Heather Ransom, who mm. has written her PhD research around the powerful effects uh, of ostracism and shunning and just how yeah. it can be physically painful so often people you know very um feeling very low in their mental health their emotional state um confused perhaps uh, and also feeling maybe some sense of i'm going to say guilt and shame around having been part of this organization that's caused great harm so i've had conversations with former elders 
that have reached out and said, you know, I'm really sitting with a feeling of shame that I didn't do more to speak out or to effect change at the same time knowing that they really couldn't do that. They couldn't really effect change in such a powerful cultic dynamic. But um, a lot of that difficult emotion that had to be worked through. Um, and then there's other complexities around, again, connections with whether it's children, different family members, grandparents not being able to see their grandchildren, vice versa, um, often very relational pieces that people are struggling with. Let's go um, speak to JT and Lady C. Uh, I was just saying to Dad, um, you know, they're from quite a while ago when we spoke to them last time. I've, mm. I've lived in two different houses since then. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, well, that was great fun, and it's nice to to go back to uh, earlier days. So, yeah, let's let's chat to JT and Lady C. And we encourage people, we, we've always kind of encouraged people, uh, when you leave this organization, if there's nothing else that you do, go to your community college, go to some college, and now, of course, we have good online programs, yeah. but take at least one semester of psychology. Mm-hmm. That was the class that, that was the very, when we started going back, to, when we got ready to go to college, that was the first class we wanted to take. The point that you made is so powerful because one of the things that we learn in psychology class, and we really spend a lot of time with our professors, is that as humans, we develop a defense mechanism. And I remember the defense mechanism that I was taught and almost all Jehovah's Witness kids were taught. My, I would come home at the end of the day and you would be crying or you'd be, and my mom would tell me, don't you worry about it, baby. Jehovah going to take care of those kids. And so you then begin to look at your classmates when they would say something or laugh. You'd be saying, that's all right. <laughs> Jehovah got something for you. And so, um, and, and so, and so you, that was your defense mechanism. You knew that all your classmates were going to die. Yeah. And, and to, to think, to, to now look back there as we were, as, as adults and formal witnesses, to think back now to what you just said, what was the psychological effect yeah. of a child in the third grade looking at their classmates and seeing dead man walking? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's it's yeah. unreal. I mean, we've made we've said about it before. I don't know if you know what I'm going to say, Dad, but um, when Mum was like a tiny kid and um, oh, yeah. she was told, well, her teachers took her mum aside and was like, "Can you tell Sarah to stop saying?" that Jehovah is going to stamp on you like ants, please. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right, I must go and speak to Dr. Heather Ransom. So she's another ex-Jehovah's Witness and uh, she got her PhD. She did her research into levers of Jehovah's Witnesses and, and the effect of shunning. So she's very, very interesting. Let's go and catch up with Heather Two things. So first of all, I mean, I've, I've heard this idea of um, um, your cult personality almost being like an overlay over yeah. your own personality. Mm. Um, and I, I don't think I agree with that very mm. much. I wouldn't say completely disagree with it. But um, from it wasn't that clear with my undergraduate stuff, but certainly with my postgraduate stuff and, and stuff that I'm hoping to get published within the next few months. One of my chapters was on identity. And um, 
I did find that people who've been raised in, in, in the religion, um, they didn't have an identity. You know, they would say things like, who was I? I, I? I didn't know who I was. I didn't have an identity. Outside of the Jehovah's Witnesses, I didn't have an identity. And I think what it is, is um, rather than it being an overlay, I think, I think it, when you're brought up in it, your identity is so interwoven with the religion that the two are inseparable. And this is why I did a separate, uh, this is again for my PhD, why I did a separate chapter on social identity and personal identity. Mm. Because although they are interwoven, I think they very much are separate as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that being raised a Jehovah's Witnesses, a Jehovah's Witness, um, you, you have a Jehovah's Witness identity. And outside of that, very little remains because of the fact that that's it's almost like the soil that you grew up in yeah and, and that's that and i do think a, it's dangerous that I is do a think problem it, i agree isn't it? with you yeah I'm, i do I suppose... agree with you it's very dangerous and that's why people go on a quest yeah to find out who they are mm. they may try loads of different religions they may become um a little bit engage in risky behavior because they don't know what to do with themselves and mm. um, there's all sorts of things and i suppose i was quite lucky there a because i left of my own accord and sought an identity through higher education, I suppose. Yeah. One of the earliest guests we had was Alex Miller. Do you remember Alex? Uh, yeah. That brilliant artist. I had the wrong voice. No, no, not that Alex Miller. Oh. Another Alex Miller. <laughs> so we. Weirdly, we started our guests when we had um, Riley first. We're going to have to catch up with Riley and Marsha at some point. But we had um, Alex Miller and then we had Alex Miller, which was kind of weird. It was almost like we were trying to speak to all the Alex Millers who used to be Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, but no, I was thinking of the artists that he draws. He paints those beautiful pictures of working men in their flat caps and stuff mm -hmm. um so let's go and quickly chat to him and then we'll go and have a word with ali miller mm -hmm. um who's the one you're thinking of uh, the writer yes, the, the writer. author mm -hmm. yeah and so despite all the weirdness around myself and the family i was brought up as a jehovah's witness which was weird to the extreme you know it put it put weirdness on another level <laughs> so what was weird about it then how what what was uh oh well you know what it's like you know you go to school and you you have to leave assembly and at that time uh, i went to the springside primary school it was a little village tiny village in between the towns of Kilmarnock and Irvine in the west of Scotland, just about 25 miles south of Glasgow. You think Glasgow's rough, Kilmarnock, my goodness. Um, so uh, Springside Prime was fine. It was more like a little house with two classrooms in it. Then you went to Draghorn, which was the next village along. Draghorn primarily, a large sandstone building, like dark red sandstone building. But there was probably maybe about six to eight hundred uh, pupils in, in the in the school, and then when assembly came, you you were part of the assembly until prayer time, <laughs> right. and then you had to stand up and walk past hundreds of kids, and all looking at you, you know, as if you had two heads, and then after the the prayer was 
finish, you can walk back and in, and everybody's there. And then, mm. you know, no birthdays, no Halloween, no Christmas. I used to hate Christmas, you know. Yeah. yeah. Watching all the Christmas presents cycle past your your door, your front window, and you know, you know what mm. it was like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It takes a very long time because you're trying to um, undo a life, essentially. I don't know um, yeah. if you'd always been a witness or what it was like yeah. for you. Um, but yeah, it, it took me ages. So I had been quite devout. I'd been quite uh, strong. Well, I thought I was quite strong witness. And I had done, I mean, looking back, I'd done a lot that I shouldn't have done, but I'd done a lot right as well. And um yeah. My first child was born in um, 2005 when I was 25. And I remember distinctly, and it's in the book, most of what I'm going to say is in the book, probably. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I remember distinctly, I was given, she was a few days old, and someone gave her a copy of my book of Bible stories. And they were yep, so excited. Yeah, they were so excited to give me this book, which had given me nightmares when I was a child. Mm. Um, and for people, for um, people who don't know the witnesses who are listening, um, my book mm. of Bible stories is a book that you are to um, read to your children, and it's got exceptionally graphic illustrations in it. I don't know if they've revised it because the witnesses do tend to <laughs> revise their publications and make sure that their older publications are taken off the internet mm. um, but one of the pictures in particular I think it might be about the fifth story in was the picture of um, Noah's flood and the flood waters yeah. are rising and people are trying to grab hold of um, floating logs and people are drowning and there's children in the picture and it's graphic and it's horrific yeah. and I remember as a child dreaming this image and being really affected by it and here I was young brand new mother with this tiny baby in my arms I'd been given this book and I thought what's wrong with me I thought there was something wrong with me I didn't doubt um the faith I doubted myself I doubted my ability to bring a child up in this religion and I didn't know why I didn't know what was wrong and I did think uh, for about the next two years after that that there was something wrong with me Oh look, there's Casey from the Cult Vault. We've got to say a quick hello to Casey. Also thinking about how we educate the the wider world. If it's uh, if we are if we're placed into silos um, in in some ways. Um, I know that even some people have expressed kind of uh, being wary of the terminology of, of you know, first generation, multi-generation uh, survivors, uh, MGAs and, mm. and FGAs, because there's a fear of being placed into those silos or boxes again um, and and having people label you in a way that you might not want to be labeled. It does make it easier when communicating with people to say this is I am um, because it, it it gives a lot of context to a person's experience. But in order to bridge that gap between the wider world and those that have experienced life in a cult or people that are educating themselves and others, 
who are working in the field of cult education and cult awareness. We can't bridge that gap if the entire demographic of people in that field is made up of the same demographic. <laughs> so absolutely. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I liken it to, um, so, you know, eating ice cream, let's say, um, you, you, if you've never eaten ice cream, you can't really understand what the sensation of eating ice cream is like, you know, you can't know the qualitative experience of eating ice cream. And that is absolutely true. You know, in order to know what eating ice cream is really like from a sort of sort of qualitative perspective you have to you have to have eaten it yourself however that's not the only thing you can say about it you know so you can analyze what ice cream is made up of you know what what are the ingredients of ice cream how does it get made um what what are the differences between good and bad ice cream in terms of what people say you know what what are people's stories about the first time they ate ice cream and the different experiences they have so you know that you yes it's true that um, there is a, a a unique perspective that, that individuals have when they've experienced life in a cult. Um, but that doesn't mean the conversation stops there and there's nothing anybody else can say about it. So we we mm-hmm. definitely need all of those aspects as well. The language is important because like you say, it helps and it's quick for understanding. And mm-hmm. like you say, you didn't necessarily know that, you know, some years ago that born-ins was a thing. <laughs> so obviously having that language makes it a lot easier to have those conversations because it's um yeah it's quite descriptive it's quite clear you can understand and start a conversation from there it's just yeah the concern of um what just doing exactly what was happening if you were in the groups anyway of yeah separating and absolutely and- absolutely and and you're also at risk of pushing out other people who might want to learn but don't understand that terminology and would have mm-hmm. to do quite a bit of legwork to get to a place where they recognized certain terminologies you know I see you know terms like DAVO being thrown around a lot at the moment and it's Mm. a really helpful acronym but you would have to actively go out to understand what the the words were in that Mm. acronym Um, and especially then how that applies to these specific situations because DAVO can be used to look at narcissism and narcissistic abuse. It can be used to look at, you know, uh, intimate relationships and, and domestic violence and domestic abuse. So it's, it, it's, you are right, Celine. It's, it's easy to um, have these acronyms and to have these descriptive terms, but um, again, could be a way that people find this field inaccessible so um like you said Stephen I think the best way to go is to make sure that everybody is being safe everybody is being sensitive everybody is listening to each other and actively trying to educate and learn but everybody should also be able to do that Oh, look, we've got Dr. Stain over there. We've got to speak to her. She's always in all of the documentaries. Alex, yeah, got to go and talk to her. It's great to speak to her. We've spoken to her twice, actually, so that was really nice. But, yeah, quite busy with the charity. Um, I recently, during the last few years, wrote a chapter for a book that's coming out. On It's a seven-volume series from Oxford University Press um, on extreme beliefs and behavior. 
and I was asked to do a um, chapter kind of trying to link and talk about the overlaps of a bunch of related concepts, extremism, cults, um, violent extremism, conspiracism, apocalypticism. Wow. Um, it was quite challenging, but I... Sounds I, really interesting. Can't wait to read that. Um, I don't you write much for academic things, but this seemed an important one to... Mm. And I was, you know, I'm always honoured when people ask me to do things like that. When did I do the January 6th committee? I don't know if I talked about oh, that. I've not heard about that at all. That was a, actually a career peak, in my own mm. estimation. So the, the um, US Senate Select Committee on the January 6th insurrection, uh, the invasion of the Capitol that mm. Trump is up on charges for and along with a lot of other people so there was um this very good committee that did really good work and one of the sort of subcommittees um they invited me to write a uh, a submission it's kind of like a bit like a witness statement yeah um talking about how trump and trumpism and and the various other bits of that insurrection were had cultic elements um so that if anyone's interested that's both on my website and i think you can the said there's someone there's an archive of all the things that were submitted so that was really interesting and what i focused on was trump as a cult leader classic cult leader uh the proud boys as something that looked very much like a cult and very interestingly the rod of iron ministries which the Rod of Iron is a spin-off from the Moonies run by the son of Reverend Moon. Right. And they were there with weapons. Um, and there were many other groups there, but I focus on those three elements and just went through kind of cult de- the cult definition I used and said, this is where they fit. Um, so that was interesting. Right, okay, so there's two people there that are talking together that we really should go and uh, and speak to. There's Daniel Stricker and there's Erica Bornman, and they were both members of Quasi Zabantu. Mm-hmm. So they've been doing a lot of work over the last couple of years, so let's go and chat to them, catch up with what they were doing at the time. Well, can you tell us a bit about what confession is like in Quasi Zabantu? Yeah, absolutely, and and... Yeah, you're spot on. So, um, I mean, interestingly, I don't think that the confessional system was in any way derived from the Catholic or Orthodox traditions no. because the founder of the group, um, I'm trying to remember what his background was as a family. I think it may have been Methodist or something like that. Um, so, yeah, it was really something. They they created uh, belief systems that they said came out of the revival, but what that meant was that somebody had had a dream or somebody had had a vision uh, somebody felt this was the best way to do things. And one of the, the core tenets, which remains until this day, is, is this idea of confession. So essentially what they teach is they kind of bypass the, the Protestant understanding of justification by faith, where it's faith in Christ and, and the atonement that saves. Mm. They, they've developed this belief system where the way you make it to heaven is you confess all of your sins, but not not directly to God. It has to be in the presence of one of the, the leaders or one of the co-workers there. And generally what that would look like is that meant going back through your entire life and trying to 
confess all of your sins. And then in an ongoing sense, anytime you sinned, you had to confess again. Now, the really insidious thing about the, this doctrine from a psychological perspective is that they essentially taught that every time you sinned, until you've confessed it, you're back under the, the judgment of God. So particularly for children, there's this mm -hmm. constant sense of um, not only divine omniscience, but, but um, th this vindictive figure that is all-knowing, all-seeing. And of course, you can never really keep up to date in, in terms of you know, keeping your life pure enough, as it were. And so, for example, uh, one thing that they did at the school at Kwasisa Bantu is that they made confession of sin mandatory for the school students um, for at least some of the time that the school existed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, th there's a sense in, in which that, that became the sum of Christianity for them. So to be a good Christian at Kwasisa Bantu was equal to, you know, uh, confessing your sins regularly to one of the leaders. It is. It's, it's, it's kind of like you're super and hyper vigilant all the time. Yeah. Because yeah. You know, I lived my life, most of my life, I lived in fear. And um, mm. fear is often still my first response to a new situation. But less and less so with therapy, with just living, just being. And mm. um, on the, the day before my 50th birthday, August last year, I had gone. It was still, we were starting to be allowed to travel a little bit. But so with two good mm. girlfriends, I, we went up the West Coast to the secluded place, which was just so beautiful. I lay in bed and I watched the sunrise and I realized that for the first time in my life, I like myself. I like who I am. And it was so breathtakingly amazing. I just cried. And, and for, for days afterwards, when I would tell a friend or, or someone about it, I would, I would cry. It was so profound that at the age of 50, I suddenly understand what people say that you have to like yourself. I, I get it now. You have to. And then you kind of become a little bit more unshakable. But yeah. it took me three decades to get to that point yeah. and writing yeah. a book. <laughs> oh, we've got Kendra as well, really interesting person that we spoke oh, to recently. Yeah. So let's go catch Yeah, Kendra. Kendra. You mentioned fear. Uh, and that's something that I think that lots of us who were raised in these groups um, experienced a lot and it, it becomes a kind of chronic condition in, in some respects. Um, I wonder whether you're able to, as much as you want to obviously, um, talk a little bit about how how fear was kind of part a normal part of your life and what you were afraid of and uh, what, what that was like. Gosh, that's a great question because it is it's such an important part of I think religious cults in general, but just speaking from my own experience, with the fundamentalist group, everything is fear-based. It's, uh, you know, we're always being protected and we were always told like, you know, if we were out and if we went to public school, that's the reason we weren't allowed to go to public school is because we would be persecuted for Christ. We, you know, we were the reason there were school shootings is because people wanted to kill Christians. And so if we were in public mm -hmm. school, then, you know, 
undoubtedly then we would be put in that situation where we would have to choose between God or living. Um, so that was one of the examples. Um, but also just the constant, the constant fear around disappointing God about the fear about, um, accidentally, you know, seducing men just by existing and that, you know, that would result in a rape or a pregnancy or like, you know, the fear of the wow. constantly the rapture with Christ coming back in the lake of fire. Like it's there's you're being just everything is so fear based. Um, and so obviously fear is used as a tactic to get people to do what you want them to do. Oh, I also want to go and talk to Nicola Ranson. So Nicola was a member of the Rajneesh Purim. So uh, most people will know this group through the Netflix film called Wild Wild Country. Let's go and chat to Nicola. Well, I'm currently in San Diego, California, so it's really exciting to be talking to you in the UK because I'm originally <laughs> from the UK. Mm. I came from rugby and <sighs> emigrated to Canada when I was 10 and ended up living in Canada and then back in England. And then I was in England after university that I got involved with uh, Rajneesh and the organization, which was then centered in India. So I went out to India in 1979 for a few months and then returned to actually Canada, trying to make money to get back to live there in India. Uh, when Rajneesh moved the ashram from India uh, to eventually Oregon mm -hmm. and it became known as Rajneesh Puram. And, that's what the Netflix documentary Wild Wild Country centers on. So I was there most of the time and I was there through the bitter end and then have been in the process of trying to figure out what happened and extricating myself ever since, basically. So I think one of the um, steps towards things getting darker is this very tricky thing of thinking you're above the law. And I had absolutely no idea that there were really egregious things going on. And most of us in who were the peons who were you know, building the city and working seven days a week, you know, 12 hours a day, had no idea that the administration was doing things like what it ended up, we found out it happened, poisoning the water supply, poisoning salad bars in a local town where an election was going to be held. Um, and you know, actually making, I think it was about 750 people ill with salmonella who ended up in hospital. Um, that's just one thing that happened, uh, but it was the biggest bioterrorist mm. attack mm. on US soil and not the first because Native Americans were um, poisoned also, um, but it, it was really egregious. And um, so that was an enormous shock to just about everyone except for the elite who had been involved in that. Do you remember when you found out that that had happened? Were you still in at that point or...? Yes, um, I was there on the ranch when the um, it, Sheila and her group of sort of the top administrators had left on a plane. I think it was night or dawn or something. So that in itself was the first indication of 
what's happened? This was unthinkable. And so gossip and fear and was going on and on. Um, and there were thousands of us there. Um, and then Rajneesh called a meeting and actually he was the one who told us, he was speaking now and he said, um, Sheila has been doing all these crimes. She turned my commune into a fascist state. And you know there were plots to kill the attorney general. There were all kinds of terrible things that were unfolding. Yeah. Um, but he put it all on her and her um, top group. And but figuring out you know what was actually true was sort of a very difficult process that um, I can't say I completely have because there's only sure. a few people who really know what was actually true. Okay, and before we go, we've just got to catch up with Riley and Marsha. So let's go and quickly catch up with them. I woke up again and then I woke up Marsha and I said, there's something I need to talk to you about. And I remember her getting really nervous. And I said, um, I started to tell her about Armageddon and what, how Jehovah's Witnesses interpret Armageddon. And the big, the big thing for me was to, to let Marsha know that Jehovah's Witnesses believed, and since I was still mentally in, I still believed that when Armageddon comes, only Jehovah's Witnesses are going to survive. Yeah. That was me. That was my way of telling her, you, you haven't got long because this, this COVID thing, this is all Bible prophecy coming true. Uh-huh. But, but at the same time, I wanted her to know that I've chosen her, even if it means that I die with her. Yeah. So I said, I think the way I started, yes, I remember now, the way I started the conversation, I said to her, do you know that I love you? And she said, yes, of course. I said, do you know how much I love you? And she said, of course I do. And I said, no, you don't. I said, the reason why I'm saying that is because basically I am right now, I've made a decision literally within the past 48 hours. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've made the decision to die with you rather than to save my own life. Mm. Yeah. So that's, that's how I let her know about, you know, the whole Armageddon thing. But at the same time, I, I didn't want, I didn't want the conversation to be, this is like me just imparting information about Jehovah's Witnesses beliefs. Yeah. I wanted her to truly understand how much I love her because I'm fully convinced that neither of us have long, but instead of going back and saving myself, I would rather die being with you. Great. Well, I've I've really enjoyed chatting to all those people. Um, it's been a great party so far. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know about you, but I just want to keep doing this thing. I want to keep talking to so many really yeah. interesting people, Celine. Um, we also, we people, we? <laughs> we have, haven't we? And we also have our topics, which I really like talking about. I mean, we. We tend not to highlight those so much, but um, I mean, I have some some of my favourites. I don't know whether you have yours, but um, my favourite was: "Is there a UFO call inside the Pentagon?" That was my. Oh, I think you had favorite. a very fun time, didn't you? you had a gloriously <laughs> fun time. With that one. It was so brilliant. Wrote a transcript of the hearing, and um, and then we went through it line by line. It was just absolutely brilliant. So, if you're not caught that one, listeners, then you've got to catch that one. <laughs> Um, that was very popular. Um, recently, I've got to say, apparently, 
I think our um, prison experiment one's got to be a top one, just because I described it a little bit to Thomas and he thought it sounded so interesting. He actually listened to the podcast, so yeah. So it must wow. have been a good one, yeah, because he listened yeah. to it. Excellent. Yeah, so that's good. So Thomas, the science guy, we call him. Um, he uh, he's been on the show as well, but it's nice to know that he he listens, but only when he's interested in the subject. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Fair he does enough. live with me all the time. Yeah, yeah. I suppose he hears maybe when he's away, room. when he's learning, when he's meant to be learning physics, and he goes yeah, to his yeah. little room all alone when he's away <laughs> in away in Abingdon. He can listen to me rattling cool. on. Very good. Um, our most popular topic one was our very first episode, which was um, people in cults. So that was our very first one three years ago. The first episode um, ever. Mm, yeah, number I one. I didn't realise we did a cult episode for the first one, you know. Yeah, it's interesting because we didn't really see it as a as a sort of mainstay. Cult. No. No, but it was a topic that we thought was quite interesting, and obviously, I've always had an interest in it, but we didn't see this podcast as being just solely about cults at the time but yeah it was one of the five that we did to start with so we kind of did we recorded five in one go and then released them all together so we had a bit of a bank so people could binge a little bit but that is the number one on the list so yeah check it out and you'll notice how we've changed over the three years cool right well i've had a good time i don't know about you listeners but um Thank you so much for being our listeners. We really appreciate it. Uh, We're not going anywhere, so please don't forget to subscribe and to follow and do whatever you need to do to make sure that you get our podcast dropping in your pod app every Saturday morning. So please um, subscribe and also reach out to us. It's really great when people do that. If you um, want to be one of the party members, then reach yeah. out. Let us know. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's how we do get quite a lot of our guests. Um, people reach out and say they'd like to uh, maybe tell their story or talk about a book that they're writing or something they're doing. So by all means, do that. And um, yeah, it's great to meet new people. So uh, yeah, feel free to contact us that way. The link is on the show notes, so you can do that. If you want to become a patron, um, big things are coming on the Patreon front, actually. I haven't really talked to you about this, Celine, but I've been looking at um, and trying to make the patronage a bit more interesting. And um, so I've introduced some new tiers. Um, They're not in in, uh, action yet, but um, there will be things happening in January. So uh, but now's the time to to get in on all of that. Um, and the final thing I, I wanted to run by you, Selena, and I haven't talked to you about this, but um, our wonderful patrons, particularly Marianne, um, she's just never gotten over the fact that we changed the theme tune um, oh. and she really likes the old theme tune. And, you know, I, I must admit, I kind of like the old theme tune. Um, it's a piece that I composed using the help of Garage Band. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and I really like the the jazzy chords on there. That I just I just really like it. So yeah, do we do we go back to the old music or do we stick with the new music? Uh, what do we do? Or you can use it to play out if you like. You can play out with that music, can't you? Yeah. What at that the end of each the episode? The outro. Yeah, that can be the outro okay. music. 
about that? Compromise All for right, you and Marion. Compromise. Right, okay, yeah. let's do that. That's yeah. been decided. All right, well, here it is. Here's the um, electric sheep, I called it. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for being a listener and speak to you again next week. Bye for now. Bye. I can't even remember how the old intro, out intro goes. Yeah. That one. <laughs> do do <laughs> <laughs> and that's the new outro it's just you doing that <laughs> <laughs>
Alicia, ex-Jehovah's Witness. Kimberly Miller, ex-Jehovah's Witness and author. John Elson, artist, former JW. Dr. Heather Ranson, former JW researcher and now academic. Leon Helsby, ex-Jehovah's Witness, poet. Marsha and Riley. Riley is an ex-Jehovah's Witness. Mary Mahoney, former Children of God. Becky Armstrong Corbett, ex-Jehovah's Witness therapist. Daniel O'Brien, ex-Jehovah's Witness educator. Ashlyn Hilliard was with Ixa and now with People Leave Cults. Producer Bob, Daniel Stricker, former member of Quasi Zabantu. Jake Vaughan, YouTuber and ex-JW. Erica Bournemouth, former member of Quasi Zabantu. Min Grob, peer researcher into coercive control. Darren Slade, PhD, former pastor and now president of the Centre for Religious Research. Sapphire Phoenix, ex-JW musician. Lizzie Enns, former member of the Amish community. Patrick Ryan, cult mediation specialist. Sarah Mather, former Jehovah's Witness and my wife. Donna Stevenson, former Jehovah's Witness. Jilly Jenkinson, therapist and author. Angela Lathwell, former member of the Children of God. John and Seamus from the Free Thought Prophets podcast. Luke Stevenson, former Jehovah's Witness and singer. JT and Lady C, ex-Jehovah's Witness YouTubers. Jared Scott, former Jehovah's Witness. Jordan Robertson, former Jehovah's Witness. Robin Jackson, South African former Jehovah's Witness. Ryan David Tuttle, former Jehovah's Witness. Mark Jones, former JW and Cora specialist. Jeffrey Wallace, Pimo, former Jehovah's Witness. Camilla Didina, filmmaker, Professor Chris French, Emeritus Professor of Anomalistic Psychology, as he puts it, Professor of Weird Shit. Alex Miller, artist and ex-Jehovah's Witness. Thank you so much for being our guest. It means a lot to us and we hope to speak to many more new people over the coming years. Bye for now.